in three, two, one. Personal catastrophes are like earthquakes. They leave us too shaken to know what to do next, afraid that every step we take might spark another upheaval. But we can learn to resist our human instinct to hide from challenges. If you want to learn how you can break through and thrive after a life-altering setback, you're going to enjoy my conversation with international best-selling author, Vince Pacenti. Well, hi, Vince. Welcome to the program. We're delighted to have you. Good to be with you. You and I had a chance to visit this summer and have dinner, and we talked about some of your latest projects and your latest books, and so I really appreciate the fact that you decided to come on and, and chat about your books and some of your work. Now, you and I have known each other for a couple of decades now. Yeah. I was trying to do the math on this. so Don't do the math. <laughs> I know. It's really scary. Well, we both started our careers, and let's give a little background to our audience. How you got where you are, but how did you evolve from an Olympic athlete to becoming a world-class, best-selling, international best-selling author, leadership? coach and specialist, and obviously you're speaking all over the world. Let's go there. Let's give some context to this. Well, I think the biggest advantage was not winning in the Olympic Games because <laughs> no, that was my exit strategy. I thought, geez, I was ranked 10th in the world. I could win a gold medal and then be on the speaking circuit, and I placed 15th, right? And yeah, it was 18 months until I gave my first speech, and it was a cancellation, I'm pretty sure. It was a networking breakfast, 90 people, and they asked if I would come in and speak at their event. And gosh, it was one of those inflection points, you know, in your life, four people came up after and said, you know, you have to do this for a living, right? And it's a fact, a good idea won't go away. I didn't know it existed from the standpoint of somebody who has content. And I really never thought of myself as having that much content until I went back and went, wait a minute, I went from recreational skier to the Olympics in four years. So I took a big goal and cut the learning curve in half. Could that be useful for mm. a sales audience or a leadership group? And so turns out, yeah. I remember when, you know, I believe you were like 26 at the time and you're watching the Olympics. Was that 88 in Calgary? Is that the one you were watching? 88, 88 Olympics. I was 26 years old. I had a ticket for the opening ceremonies and I watched buddies of mine who I'd raced against and with in the sport of luge, they were on the Olympic team. And I was in the stands in Calgary holding a ticket and went, wait a minute, this habit of walking away from uncertainty wasn't working. That sting of regret was enough to motivate me to pick up the sport of speed skiing, which would be a demonstration sport in the Olympics four years after Calgary. Well, when it comes to the speed skiing, I remember when you started and I remember seeing some of your early engagements and there was a term, a real popular group called the Crazy Canucks. And it yeah. was a nickname for a group of World Cup Alpine ski racers from Canada who many of these guys, they rose to prominence primarily in the 70s and 80s. We had Jungle Jim Hunter, Dave Irwin, Dave Murray, Podbarski, Ken Reed. These guys you know, earned a reputation for being fast and crazy or recklessly yeah. skiing in the downhill event. And I thought, well, they're going 75, 80 miles an hour downhill. And then I came across what you do and watched some of the work that you do and in the races. Why don't you tell our audience just the slight differences so we can really define what crazy looks like? Well, I knocked down the Canadian record five times. And the final time that I did it, I went 135 miles an hour down a mountain on skis in a rubber suit. That's crazy. <laughs> well, I remember watching you when you talked about your training, 135, and you would train on top of a car. Yeah. And they'd strap you on to a station wagon or something, and you had your skis on. Was that a true story? Yes, I would have to say it's twice true. <laughs> well, I couldn't get into a wind tunnel. I tried, actually, to get into the NRC. Right. 
the National Research Council in Ottawa. And I called them up and I said, can I get in? And they said, well, it costs money. And I said, how much? I guess it was something like $2,000 every five minutes or something like that. And I said, can you sneak me in? And he said, what, wait, what are you? And I said, I'm a speed skier. He goes, listen, what is that? And I said, well, I wear a skin tight rubber suit and a Darth Vader style helmet. And the guy said, well, that sounds kinky, but this is Ottawa. Come on down. Crazy. <laughs> but I couldn't afford it. <laughs> and so anyway, ended up getting a buddy who was a race car driver. And we figured out how to strap the skis to the top of the car and ensure that the whole rig didn't fly off. And indeed, I had a pink rubber suit, like a hot pink rubber suit. Oh, lovely. 100 miles an hour, you know, 100, you know, 200 kilometers an hour on the top of the car. I forget what the speed was in kilometers, clicks. 160? Yep. Yeah, about 160 clicks on top of the car. Now, you really leveraged that, and you've written a number of different books, but I want to talk about, first of all, the precursor to right. your latest book, The Earthquake. And your prequel of the book was The Ant and the Elephant. And it was a huge success. And celebrities endorsed, talked about it. I mean, you did really well with that book. And the lessons that come from this are a little different from the earthquake. Yeah. Let me set the stage here a little bit on the ant and the elephant, because you may actually have a recollection of Dr. Lee Poulos. Sure. And he came into town and spoke on the power of the mind, that kind of thing. But there was one bit of research that just I never forgot. In a second of time, your conscious mind processes with 2,000 neurons, while your subconscious mind is processing with 4 billion neurons. Crazy. So 2,000 conscious, 4 billion subconscious. The ratio that he used was if you took a golf ball and you put it on the top of the Houston Astrodome, the golf ball would be the conscious mind, the Astrodome, the subconscious. I always give credit where credit's due, but I also don't want to steal somebody's uh, metaphor. So I changed it and I said, well, what if it was the ratio between an ant and an elephant, which is exactly the same. The ant on the back of the elephant is the conscious mind making decisions. The subconscious mind is the elephant also making decisions on direction, right? right? So you can intend on going west, but what if the elephant is headed east? And so that book sprang out of the first, the idea of that metaphor, but then saying, wait, that could be a parable. So in the early 2000s, I wrote The Ant and the Elephant, self-published, and it's been translated into, like, I've lost track. I think it's over 14 languages now. LeBron James quoted it in Sports Illustrated. FedEx used it as a a leadership tool. Uh, DuPont used it for safety training. So this is a very sticky concept where we can intend on going in a direction, but end up in a different place. Like, I intend on going on a diet and then walk by the mirror and go, wait a minute, this is not right, working. Right. Yeah. You talk about that though. It's a major principle of your writing that you teach is that we need to align our conscious and our subconscious. Yeah. Because if our conscious is going one direction and our subconscious is going a different direction, i.e. the elephant and the ant, how do we do that? How do we form that alignment? It actually starts with the emotional quotient. And I think a big mistake we make in our world today is we often ask, what do I do? So if we want to accomplish some goal, the first question automatically is, what do I do? You don't start there. You start with the emotional quotient, like what's the emotional buzz? Or in that book, it's called the elephant buzz, which is when a thought creates a physical reaction. That is a litmus test for 2,000 neurons and 4 billion neurons headed in the same direction. That's alignment. Think of that for a second. If you had intention and 4 billion neurons of agenda going in the exact same direction, huge, huge, things get easier. Stuff appears to you. It's absolutely beyond our comprehension 
as much as it's beyond the comprehension of an ant to understand an elephant underneath its six feet, right? It doesn't see elephant. It sees a gray landscape. Yeah. And so this notion of having that kind of alignment and the emotional buzz, you could call it intuition, but it doesn't have to make sense. So for example, when I was 26, it didn't make sense to attempt to be on the Canadian ski team in a sport I had no knowledge of. It made no sense because I had no ski race experience. So that makes no sense. But the emotional buzz of marching in the opening ceremonies of the Olympic Games was a clue, a litmus test for this is worth paying attention to. Now, we can never know what path to take, but we could certainly pay attention to the clues. How do you tap into that? So let's say we've got our conscious mind yet. We know where we want to go. We know our objective. We use our intuition. You do a lot of, I mean, every mental exercise possible from meditation to visualization. You've added all of those things. Are those all ingredients of that as well? Yeah, they're all different means to the same end. So in answer to your question, there's two universal truths. One, you'll gravitate towards your dominant thought. Mm -hmm. And the other universal truth is you'll gravitate to that which you believe to be true. So we are often pedestrians when it comes to dominant thoughts and truths, right? The truth is the truth. What do you mean? The dominant thought? Well, the dominant thoughts are they're just thoughts. They appear, so they're dominant, right? Right. So to go from being a pedestrian to the architect of those dominant thoughts, to be the architect of that which you believe to be true, because we could dive into the psychology of the cognitive model, but if I could say this simply, what we typically do in the order of things is say, well, these actions will lead to these results. Right. So if I do this, I'll get this result. If I go on a diet, I'll lose weight. If I make more sales calls, I'll be able to get more business. So this relationship between action and results is myopic. Don't be so nearsighted in terms of focusing just on the actions and look at the cognitive model, which is basically set up with a filter. And we all have our own filter of our beliefs, our attitudes, and truths. So we have conscious beliefs, attitudes, and truths. The wackadoodle part of all this was we have subconscious beliefs, attitudes, and truths. And if you overlay the ant and the elephant concept, there are 4 billion neurons of beliefs, attitudes, and truths that are below consciousness. It's like an so, iceberg, a big iceberg. Just a big the, old yeah. iceberg. You don't know what you don't know. And so the notion of being the architect for your beliefs, attitudes, and truths for your subconscious mind is what I needed to be able to accomplish as an athlete because the conscious mind knew it was unrealistic to try and go for the Olympic Games. But if it's a universal truth that you'll gravitate to that which you believe to be true, and you can be the architect of your dominant thought, it's repetition bias, right? It's right. the human right. condition. You repeat something enough times, it becomes true. And so it's just turning the tables on this human condition and being proactive about it. And so that's what the ant and the elephant is about. It's being able to, to align your ant and elephant so that in the parable of the book, they end up getting to the oasis. And that formula in the book, the ant and the elephant, is the exact same formula that I used to get to the Olympic Games in four years, to be ranked 10th in the world after two years, being medal contention in those Olympics, because I started with that emotional buzz. This episode is sponsored in part by Rainmaker Digital Solutions, featuring ActiveCampaign. Looking to drive growth with customer experience automation? ActiveCampaign, the number one marketing automation platform for e-commerce, 
B2C and B2B companies gives you the email marketing, marketing automation, and CRM tools you need to create incredible customer experiences. ActiveCampaign is the platform we use to reach, nurture, convert, and grow our business, and you can use it to grow yours. You can see why 150,000 plus businesses like yours choose ActiveCampaign to help them grow and become preferred in the markets they serve. You can also start your free trial by visiting our website and clicking on the ActiveCampaign trial link. As a bonus, we'll also give you a digital copy of my book, Becoming Preferred, How to Outsell the Competition. And in the interest of full disclosure, I am a shareholder in the company. And now back to my conversation with Vince Pacenti. I think you talked about with all the characters, whether it's a deer, Algo, yeah. Brio, or Chromia, the behaviors that changed and that alignment as it oh. evolved into the earthquake, the proverbial hits the fan. And matter of fact, you talk about that in the opening preface introduction of your book, where oh, yeah. life is going great. So you're according to plan, you've achieved the objective, you got the ant and the elephant moving in the right direction. And then all of a sudden, something outside of your own condition that yeah. you had no control over coming and just slapped you yeah. down, right? Or do you use the same formula to carry forward and do it again? Or does it need to evolve again? Well, personally, I had to learn the hard way that no, it's not the same formula. Right. <laughs> this forming the ant and the elephant I used not just to get to the Olympic Games, but <clears throat> being inducted into the Speaker Hall of Fame, for example, right? Yeah, How'd you that achi- happen? You achieved a lot on the, for sure. Right. New York Times bestselling list. How'd that happen? Right. It was all sorts of intention and subconscious agenda that was aligned. But the opening line of the earthquake reveals the concept, which is that opening line is there's no linear way out of chaos. When we are smacked in between the eyeballs with a personal earthquake, a financial earthquake, a relationship earthquake, a health earthquake, or just an earthquake, (laughs) when your whole world from underneath you is yanked out from underneath you, a hard way to learn this lesson, it's a cliche, but what got you here isn't necessarily going to get you there. And I I didn't buy that. I figured I had it all figured out. Right. Knew how to get out of this financial earthquake that uh, I was hit by in 2008. Now, a lot of people were hit by a financial earthquake and some were able to thrive. I know you and your business thrived in 2008 because you were able to adapt and respond to a market in a way that the market went, we need you now. And uh, the opposite happened for me. I want to go into that, but let's restate that quote because it's a great quote and I had it done in our notes. It's, there is no linear line out of chaos. What has worked in the past might not work in the future. And a hard lesson. And you are very, very transparent. Matter of fact, I really appreciated your transparency in the introduction where things are going well. And basically, you got a big slap down by the economy and by conditions outside of what you did. And I understand that what that did for you, the pandemic did for me. So I totally could relate to it and love the principles and the tools that you teach in the earthquake. When it comes to Richter scale, there's different levels of, I know it goes between three and seven. And if you get above seven, it's a nasty one. People die, right? So the pandemic, we'll call that an eight plus. It could go in there. And I've been in earthquakes. I was in the big earthquake in San Francisco at the time. We can just come off the bridge, the Oakland Bay Bridge, an hour earlier and the bridge collapsed and down. I watched telephone poles bounce and hit the ground before I know what it looks like and you feel helpless. Yeah. Let's go into a little more detail of exactly where you were because a lot of people can relate to that. The pandemic has wreaked havoc on business. And yeah. I, what I want to show them is how you know Vince Pisani and your family, along with your wife Michelle and family, moved from, hey, being top of the totem pole to 
having to recreate, redefine after sweating bullets for quite a while and dealing with it because other people can share and relate to that. Yeah. From 2008 on, it was a long, long road to try and figure out how to get out of that chaos. And when the pandemic hit, I learned my lesson. It's just put out value. Just if you have an expertise, just push out value. Whether you get paid or not, it doesn't matter. And I was very busy making no money. Yeah. Going broke, getting rich. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, but it was okay because I pushed out value. I ended up pushing out, I, said, I thought the pandemic would last maybe three weeks. Yeah, right. And so I said, every day I'm going to put out a video to help other people. You know, yeah. eight months later with 250 videos or whatever it was, I mean, on daily videos of pushing out value. A, you get better if you do something over and over again. But B, you've got intellectual property. You've got some assets that you can repurpose along the way as well, So, right. which I've done with all that. So I was able to kind of come out on top. And then there's just been all sorts of headwinds that just don't matter anymore. It's being able to provide value. But man, in 2008, 2009, 2010, 2011, 12, 13, it was just an insidious slide into why is this not working? And concept for the earthquake, I got it quite early. I got it maybe seven years ago, hmm. six years ago, but I hadn't figured out how. I hadn't figured out how to get out of my own personal earthquake. So it took years that ended up being the purpose of this book was once I figured out how I would share that, those universal truths. Well, and, and I love those truths. And you say in the book that when we have an earthquake, our conscious mind searches for solutions that have served us in the past without accepting that this is no longer the past. So it becomes our new reality. And unpack that for us. Yeah, it's a concept early on in the book where I call it grasp the contradiction. And the contradiction is, I know what to do. I've been here before. I know how to get out of this. The contradiction is the subconscious mind is thinking the exact opposite thing. And this is subconscious. So the subconscious below consciousness is going, this is painful. Imagine if you had a knife in your leg and the advice was, oh, don't think about the knife. Just focus on what you want or let go. Are you kidding me? No, I'm not letting go. This hurts. There's a knife in my leg. And so this grasping that contradiction, maybe a better visual would be, let's say in a relationship, you and Beth are in the same vehicle, right? Right. right. And you each have a steering wheel and you've got your steering wheel. Beth has her steering wheel. And the contradiction is you're not going to get anywhere if you both have your hands on the steering wheel. Right. It, it, and there has to be a new steering wheel. There has to be almost a third reality, an ability to discover what this new solution is, which is off your radar. It's not part of your past. It's not even an option in front of you because you don't know because the earthquake is so devastating. This divorce was so devastating. This bankruptcy was so devastating that the subconscious mind is deflated. It's in pain. It doesn't know what to do. It just wants to run for cover. And the conscious mind is going, I've got this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to make this. I'm going to will this into existence, right? Yeah. It's not how it works. No, it doesn't happen. And so for each of you to take your hands off that steering wheel is a massive move in the right direction in chaos, which makes no sense, but that's the contradiction. Well, it's that letting go. go. And I think it's your good friend and mentor, Harville Hendricks, and right. who yeah. talks about the third reality. 
And it's an interesting point. I know he talks on relationships and other things as well. Well, he's the reason that I was able to come up with a solution loop. We went out for lunch and I said, I just can't wrap my mind around it. He says, oh, that's simple. It's a relationship. And of course, coming from him, been on Oprah 19 times and he wrote books on relationships. It was like, oh yeah, yeah, it's a relationship between conscious and subconscious mind changed everything. Yeah, it's a great insight. And you use the same characters. Your character key, you've got Adir, you've got Algo, Rio, Chromia. It's built as a parable. And you tell the story, which makes you really like the characters. And I know you use a, I think I heard on one of your interviews somewhere that you try and follow up like a Pixar model. What if this was a movie? What if this is something we could watch? Is that how the framework for the story unfolded? Yeah, it was, I cheated a little bit and I went to the screenwriting world and they call it the beat sheet. And the beat sheet is basically a standard model for how a story unfolds. And so I looked at the beat sheet and I went, okay, because I'm a novice when it comes to storytelling, really, quite frankly. I wrote The Ant and the Elephant early 2000s and haven't written a fictional story since. But I knew how important character development was. I knew in the earthquake, new characters show up like vultures. When you go through an earthquake, it's absolutely shocking how people will come in for blood when you're just trying to Valifar, Valifar the vulture. Valifar shows up. You got Chromia, the wolf, who's just chasing you down because she wants to eat. And it's like, well, getting skinny (laughs) here because it's not working. There's all sorts of characters that end up showing up. And being able to draw somebody through that, almost like the hero's journey in a way, I drew from that as well. When you look at examples like Star Wars or Avatar or any of the Pixar movies, they kind of paint by numbers a little bit, the hero's journey and then the darkest of times. And so I followed that formula, but... It's a parable that has content attached to it. Yeah, so, well, the principles and the w- wisdom yeah. that they learn in the roadmaps and the analogies yeah. and the metaphors that you use within the story are yeah. very, very applicable. And and like you say, the hero's journey, you've got the hero and then there's the guide, right? And you have like Ella, I believe is the guide, the elephantine subconscious character. And you relate and you remember who they are. And, and Elgo, they're just some wonderful characters. And I thought you did a good job. Um, you. you say in there, when devastation gets in the way, yeah. through the middle is the way. What yeah. do you mean by that? If my kids remember one thing that I've taught them, and it's the one thing I live my life by, it's this saying, never make a decision based on fear. Mm. And a fellow Canadian, John Amat, said, when you run away from fear, it gets larger. When you go towards it, it gets smaller. That's interesting. And so through the middle is the way. It's in the middle is where maybe the largest fears reside, but that's where the solutions are to pass through that, to stay away from it and to be full of fear, to stay and stand aside. Uh, It's just going to get worse. No, I love that. Ryan Holiday wrote a book called Obstacles Are the Way, in which he takes a lot of his source material from the Stoics from 2000 plus years ago. Obstacles are the way, the path. Most people, they look for the easy way around. They try and get out of that where the middle is the way. So instead of resisting the challenge you write about, we want to ease into that space that every challenge provides. Don't panic and you say, embrace the unknown. Yeah, it's easy to say, by the way. Yeah, see, I was going to say, that's a tough one, but... It It is tough, right? Because that's where the pain is, too. That's where the, wait a minute, that caused a lot of pain, and you want me to go towards that? Everybody should try doing martial arts a little bit. Sure. Because you will learn something quite quickly that an oncoming force is not to be resisted, it's to be used to your advantage. Take their energy. Yeah, take that energy and use it to your advantage. And so if someone were to come at you with a knife... 
The reaction is to resist and push back. Well, actually, in any of the martial arts, it's to reach in and redirect that, that oncoming force and then bring it down that way. So it's just one of those life lessons that you either are going to learn the hard way or our human condition is like resist and no, 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 wait, 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 wait. I believe it's chapter two of your book. You talk about using discomfort along these lines as a catalyst because you never know right. what's next until you encounter what isn't. So you can recreate that new reality and it's that path of self-discovery is before you. It's before each of us. So I kind of chuckled at the line you had, the more stubborn I am, the more I will struggle with letting go. So discomfort will force me to create a new reality. Yeah. Yeah. It's again, that part of that resistance, right? Yeah. And I'm with you on that. I mean, so I just want to be comfortable. I just want to be comfortable. <laughs> Cozy. Yeah. In an earthquake, well, how's that working out for you, right? Right. right. And right. so that really is the way to go through that middle of it. That discomfort is to be poked at. That discomfort is what's causing that because you can put a Band-Aid on it or you can go, wait a minute, what if I put on knee pads and then went skateboarding? <laughs> it's just this kind of lessons as we learn along the way. Well, and it's how we look at things. And I've been reading studies about anxiety and as people were, there's a lot of anxiety out there and we all suffer from anxiety at different levels. I remember when COVID hit, I cried for a week. All of our engagements canceled and I went, oh no. My wife and I were in two different countries. It was, I'm going to get locked out. The They were shutting down borders. Who knew how long this was even going to last for? We've got, at the time of our recording here, we've got the stuff going on over in Europe with Ukraine and Russia creates anxiety. We've got leaders threatening to use the big one. But that's just that anxiety. It could be related to our jobs, fear of recessions, all kinds of things. And you say we can interrupt that anxiety in the book. In chapter three, the characters talk about harnessing action to interrupt the anxiety and that we need to stop being the victim because that's yeah. a place of powerlessness and stop saying, there's a great line, you say something a thousand times and it's locked in a thousand times. So nice. how do we make that dysfunction the new normal? It's about being that architect instead of a pedestrian. This notion that when things are catastrophic, it's feeling of powerlessness. As I wrote this book, I definitely didn't want the earthquake to be a cliche. Right. And it's so, we're dancing around a lot of cliches right now because there is this resistance that we naturally have to say, well, I'm powerless. I'm a victim in this situation. Right. I don't know if there's a better feeling than being able to take action in the state of powerlessness. Because all of a sudden, you aren't powerless, right? Right. You've taken a step forward. And the, the whole book is not linear. There's no linear way out of chaos. Well, what is it? Well, it's very much a vortex. It's this, does this work? Does this work? So that curiosity is so essential. I know I'm getting ahead of myself here, but it's definitely, that's where we're headed is that space of curiosity. No, I think so. And I think action, whenever in my lifetime, I felt anxious, maybe feeling a little, I won't say depressed because I've actually talked to people who go through depression and what I experience is nothing like what they've gone through, but I always found action and hard work would always get me out of that state. I couldn't be in both places at the same time. So the yeah. amygdala, I think, is responsible for our emotions and our feelings. But when I'm working out a prefrontal cortex and I'm busy focused on a task, I'm not even thinking about that. So no, you're not. You're no. not. <laughs> and you talk about what to let go of as well. I always like to equate that. I want to hear your perspective of what we should let go of and how we focus on what we should let go. I call it Marie Kondoing your life. I don't know if you're familiar with the KonMari method. Method. Marie Kondo is this lovely Asian woman, doesn't speak much English. She's got a TV show, I think it's on Netflix. And she talks about getting rid of everything that doesn't bring you joy. 
and yeah. organize your house. Well, my wife took on to that and we have organized it. Everything has a place. Everything has a place and it gets returned back to that place. And if we haven't used it in six months, it's basically toasted. If we're not sure, yeah, we right. wait one year, but it's letting yeah. go. And it's really hard to let go of things. Well, I need that. I, I might need that tool one day. And when I need it, I'm going to really want it. And her rule is if it's 20 bucks and it's within 20 miles, get rid of it. Or if you haven't <laughs> used it. So learn to let go. What do you mean by letting go and what we should choose to let go? And how do we find what we should let go? All right. So there's maybe a better simple question to ask to know if it's taking you forward or not. And actually, I'm going to steal from the ant and the elephant this piece because there was points in the journey where the ant realized these thoughts weren't taking them towards the oasis. It was taking them away. And it's a conversation that your conscious mind has with your subconscious mind. Now, this is going to sound a little wacky, but it works. It worked in ski training. And that's why I adapted it. Sure. If it's taking you further away from your oasis, where you want to end up, that relationship or the self-image or the job or whatever that goal is, but that thought or that outside thought, somebody's criticizing you, ask yourself, is this taking me closer to that goal or further away. If the answer is further away, the ant says to the elephant, your conscious mind says, you silently say to yourself, thank you. Because there must be a reason why the subconscious mind is embracing this in some way. But say thank you. But that's not part of my vision. My vision is, and then you pivot from what that negative path is to where you want to end up. And so do that enough times. This is adapted. I heard Tony Robbins years ago, oh gosh, years in the mid 80s, talk about scratching a record. He said, if you scratch a record, you've interrupted that pattern. If right. you scratch it again, you interrupt it. It's still going to play the same song. But eventually, over time, you scratch that record enough times, that pattern is not there anymore. It's simply gone. So this thank you, but that's not part of my vision. And then the pivot onto not just what it is, but what it feels like. Mm. What are the five senses? What are the smells, the sounds associated? Bring it into an experience. I call this experiential. Experience what the outcome is from this negative thought or negative, somebody saying something negative or something comes in the mail or some bill collectors calling you up, beating you up. Ask, is this taking me closer, this feeling taking me closer to or further away? Then you go back onto that emotional buzz and it's an extraordinary way to stay the course. You've got a number of different formulas that you share in your book. How do the five C's fit into this? The five C's are that linear path. Right. And so clarity, which is not just visual clarity, but an emotional buzz clarity. Right. The second C is commitment. Commitment is simply not episodic. A couple walks down the aisle on a Saturday and they're done with commitment. Yeah, no, <laughs> no. it's a process. It's a process. Yeah. yeah. yeah so sure. re-upping to that commitment is essential. The third C is consistency. And I use the philosophy as an athlete, do what the best aren't willing to do, do what the competition is not willing to do, not what they're not doing, but what they're not willing to do. And so what are the best not willing to do? Well, typically those are the things you're not willing to do either. And that's great advice. What is the competition not willing to do and just simply do it, whatever it is. It doesn't have to be big things. I mean, it could be going to the library and getting a book out of the library. Well, wait, who does that? Yeah. Well, you you could do that. It's a library, right? Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's a library. Well, it's even getting up at 5 a.m. I'm an early morning guy. My brain works best in the morning for me. After four o'clock, I'm pretty much brain mush. But for me, that's my discipline and it's a habit. 
it. And I look yeah. forward to it. I've got two, three hours before I see or hear from anybody. And that's my personal R&D time. And I know my uh-huh. competition isn't willing to do that. So sure, no, they know they're going to get up when they feel like it or whatever. Confidence is the fourth one. Confidence comes from experience. But what if you don't have an experience with a personal earthquake, right? What if you don't have experience with a pandemic and a supply chain management issue and rising gas prices and maybe got a divorce at the same time? This pile on of, wait, this is brand new. What the heck am I supposed to do? Confidence is the single most important thing for anyone to accomplish great results. But confidence normally comes from experience. So being the architect of those kinds of preparatory experiences so that you have peak performance. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but it just basically building confidence is flipping the gap between fear and confidence where fear is low, not high. Right. That confidence is high and then performance will go up and results go up. And then, as you mentioned, the control, control those routines. And you know what the last step on that routine is, is a decision to enjoy this, to have fun, right? Which is a perspective. That's the one thing that you can control is how you react to all of these situations. You decide, I'm going to have fun. Yeah. Now the book, even though it's a parable is filled with lots of great principles. Matter of fact, you talk, one of my favorites in there is where you talk about when earthquakes do happen and they will happen and they're at all levels of the Richter scale, right? So there's going to be a small earthquakes, big earthquakes, massively big earthquakes, devastating earthquakes. But you talk about the solution loop and Mm -hmm. you use the petals of the flower to make the point. Let's chat about that just for a few minutes. As a visual, yeah. Yeah. Well, as I wrote the book, I wanted the concepts to be sticky and to picture a six-petal plumeria. Now, that does not exist, but I know there's four-leaf clovers, which most of them are three, so I'm going to make a six-leaf well, um, plumeria. Right. Normally, there's five. But the six of them are really, they start with grasp the contradiction, then seek the alignment. And being right. able to have that alignment between your conscious intention and your subconscious agenda, which is scared and paranoid and you've gone through an earthquake you're in pain right and then the solution loop goes on to being able to be curious and creative i mean to have this curiosity well maybe this might work because now you're in this land of uncertainty you just don't know what is going to work and i think the reason people recoiled after or during the pandemic you just have to pivot it's such a trite piece of advice oh just pivot you know yeah well What if you don't know what the pivot is supposed to be, right? Which is for most of us, maybe all of us, but the curiosity followed by creativity. Well, maybe if it's this, could I be creative on how this is applied? Could I volunteer at this certain area? I was with my youngest and she was in college for parents weekend. And we ran into one of her buddies who had graduated He was in town for parents weekend with his folks and his brother was there and he just quit his job, right? He was making a six figure. He says, it didn't matter. I just hated going to work. I just hated it. And then he had to answer the question to himself, what's next? He didn't know. And this curiosity and creativity is the way is, well, maybe this will work. And him volunteering at a nonprofit with his idea to say, okay, well, maybe I could do this. That's perfect because maybe there's no compensation, but it's the mathematics of opportunity. You open a door and there's going to be another door that you can go, oh, what's behind that door? And you open that door and guess what? Another door opens or you could open that door. So that curiosity and creativity can lead to the potential to take action on something. Just look at any entrepreneur out there. Any entrepreneur 
will give you 10 ideas that did not work right. and the one that did, yeah, or the nine or the eight. We only hear about the great ones. How hard could it be? Bill Gates, Steve Jobs. Right but- place, right place, right time. They'll even tell you that. They were in the right place at the right time doing the yeah. right things. And yeah. timing luck, can have a huge impact. The, the timing has a lot. Luck has a lot to do with it, but it's not without... Does this work? Does this work? Does this work? And answer your question, if you had to simplify the solution loop, it would be, does this work? Does this work? I mean, you got to go through sometimes weeks of understanding if this is going to work and then get to the point where you say, okay, well, no, but maybe there's something else in here. So, Well, knowing when to give up on that too. And I think in chapter eight of the book, you talk about adapt or die. Ego carries pain and suffering. And so really adaptation is good. So whether it's absolute grief or loss, there's no words that will take that pain away. And you talk about even moving on. Don't talk about your earthquake story. I always hesitated even asking about your background in the introduction in the book because it brings up the story again and you get all those feelings and emotions. I know if I talk about things that happen, I'm not living back there anymore. That's not where I'm at. So it gives you perspective, but that's not where I'm at. So if we allow it to stay in our head and to use your quote, rent free, it can demean us, it can take away our confidence. So to change our results, we need to first change our beliefs as you teach. Michael, this is maybe the most important thing for your listeners to really embrace the importance of it. And this actually was inspired by a conversation years ago when I ran into a person, she's from Australia. She started sharing this story with everybody in the room and they were gasping from how extraordinary this was that she had gone away her husband had died and her in-laws hated her so they never told her i mean there was all this story right and she relived it in front of all these people i don't know this person but i knew enough that i asked her i said how many times have you shared that story and she said oh i don't know i said would it be over a hundred She said, it's in the hundreds. I've shared this story a lot. You don't know me, but you have re-experienced something that happened once. And you've re-experienced it over and over and over. You've embedded this in your subconscious mind so much that this is going to define your next steps in life. You don't know me and you can start hating me right now for this, but I just, this is my sandbox. And the second you stop sharing that story is the second you're going to be free from that story. Yeah, good point. And so it's just, it's essential. So that's why that appeared in the earthquake. Yeah, lots of great things in there, Vince. We're going to put all your contact information in the show notes. People can get hold of you. They can find your book and go to your website, vincebiseni.com. And again, we'll have that in the show notes. But if you're really looking to accelerate your breakthroughs and leave all those setbacks, which we all have behind us, awesome book, great parable, entertaining story. You've really weaved some great principles in there. And I love at the end of each chapter how you've got the key learnings that go that the characters can apply. And really appreciate you making time for us and our audience, Vince, and sharing some of these with us and your story. It's good to be with you yet again. And uh, next time you get through Dallas, let's break bread. All Uh, right. Say uh, hi to Beth for me too, please. Absolutely. Thanks, Vince. Appreciate it. This podcast is created and associated with Summit Media. My production team is Beth Smith and Kendra Vickers. The fee for the show is that you share it with friends when you find something useful or interesting.